leader we will be discussing today is Fidel Castro. We will cover his fierce revolutionary uprising and his lengthy and controversial tenure as Cuba's leader. Of course, we will also ponder the CIA and mafia-involved assassination attempts, near-nuclear catastrophes, and other enticing stories that surround the notorious leader. Slavo? Baz? Fidel Castro, uh, divulge us on what you knew about him before we started doing this research, reading the books. Um, communist. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> my... Was a uh, communist leader of Cuba and um, had a lot of strained relations with the United States and uh, was in cahoots with Russia for long periods of time. That's what I would say um, comes to mind when I think of him. And I think it was green suit, his green jumpsuit, because that's the only thing that you ever see him in, which it was. Um, so when I picture him, that's I picture him in his green jumpsuit. But how about you? Yeah, same thing. I probably thought of him more as a dictator, um, even before I would have thought communism. Hell of a beard, famous beard. And I heard this one story. I don't know if it's true. I believe I saw it on the telly, but Fidel Castro he'd have men go out to the beaches in Cuba and they would just pick girls and be like, you're coming with us to see Fidel Castro. Really? Yeah. I, I don't know how valid it is. It didn't come up again in my research, but I'm pretty confident I saw this on some documentary. Wow. That's, that's a, it's kind of a dictator move. That remind, uh, um, I'm trying to. Didn't uh, Sasha Baron Cohen do something where he dressed kind of like Fidel Castro? <laughs> I didn't know that. As a political, it might have been a different dictator. It might have been like a um, Middle Eastern dictator. Or yeah, there was the movie Dictator. Uh, but that behavior reminds me of that movie. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I will say the other thing, I do remember two more things. In elementary school, I remember a teacher talking about how a lot of people really liked Fidel Castro and they had very high literacy rates. Um, and I do remember another history teacher talking about, you know, his longevity as a leader. Just so many presidents were leader at the same time mm. and he outlasted them all. I guess I also kind of recall um, people being like happy that he died. Like the, like the government was very happy that he died. So back in, um, what was that? 2016. So. Yeah. I remember that period as well. Definitely disliked by but a, a long, a long leader. But that was that was uh, that was kind of what I thought of him going in. Not a good yeah. guy. Yeah, not a good guy. No friend of the United States. Um, 
So before we step through his life, do you have a quote for us? I do, as a matter of fact. Hmm, good. This is a quote from his Revolutionary Times. Revolutionary justice is not based on legal precepts, but on moral conviction. Mm. Taking the moral high ground, that's a good stance. If you can claim the moral high ground, that gives a lot of power to your movement. Yeah, and I think what we'll find is that he quite often took the moral high ground and did what can be interpreted as immoral things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it all began August 13th, 1926. And as we were saying, he died in 2016. So uh, 90 years, long mm -hmm. life. Yep. Grew up wealthy. His uh, dad was a landowner, had a bunch of siblings. And it's always interesting when in the future he becomes an advocate for uh, poverty and the lower classes. So it's always interesting when that leader comes from, you know, an upper class family. Um, mm -hmm. And he was very active, liked the outdoors, enjoyed sports. Um, and again, even later on, we see he becomes like this rugged leader. So mm -hmm. kind of makes sense. And then one fun tidbit everyone likes to point out he actually as you know a 12 year old or young kid wrote a letter to fdr asking um for fdr to vote a certain way on a bill and then he asked it for green american money <laughs> and fdr did respond or fidel got a letter back no money, but thanked him for his support. So just kind of an interesting tidbit that at such a young age, he's already asking, you know. Very politically active, yeah. Yeah, already political. And he has this, you know, a letter to what will become his, you know, adversary of the future, the United States. So a little mm. interesting tidbit. But yeah, always politically active. And... In school, he, uh, on his wall, he had a map that would follow the Axis powers. So Germany, Japan, Italy during the World War. And so it just shows you how, you know, politically involved he is. And he actually, and, and this probably didn't age well, but he would carry the main camp. Maybe I pronounced that wrong but Hitler's manifesto, he would well, carry that around with him on campus and he would practice orating, you know, Mussolini, Italian dictator speeches. Do you like kind of subscribe to that kind of theory or was it more just, um, just kind of trying to read about the leaders of the, the prominent leaders of the time, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I wonder if he is looking at them for how to be a leader or it wouldn't surprise me. I do think, you know, those people be came into leadership because they had ideas that really resonated with people. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure. I wonder if he just liked their ideas about strong governments or if he, you know, more just idolized those people because he wanted that power. 
if you ever watch him speak, Fidel, when he gets older, he is so passionate, so so much fervor that you can it doesn't surprise me that he you know would orate Mussolini's speeches. He's very he's got that passion when he speaks. Not not like a lot of presidents or businessmen who are very matter of fact and calm. He is out there, you know, leading a protest every time he speaks. Yeah, that is true. And that and people said that of Hitler as well. That he was a very impassioned orator. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you ever see Hitler in movies, that is also what Fidel Castro looks like when he's speaking. Always politically active. He even ran for some positions during school age and university age. Never won, um, which is very interesting, considering he becomes such a dominant political power in the future. Also, while at university, he becomes involved with some gang activity, which is pretty common at the time. And a lot of the gang activity is associated with social and political movements. So much so that this gang is involved in trying to overthrow uh, Trujillo, the leader in the Dominican Republic. And Castro involves himself on this revolution attempt and so they, they send a big ship over and the famous story that comes out of this is the attempt was quickly squashed by the Dominican uh, government but so Castro abandons the ship and swims to shore you know allegedly and Castro would build up the story later but allegedly a pretty far distance and it was supposed to be shark infested waters. And he was like swimming with one arm and he'd hold the gun above the water and it became a big story. And, uh, you know, Fidel always controlling his image and marketing himself. So that, that's one story that came out of that. It's a prevailing theme with every single person that we chronicle. It feels like every single one has a story about a shipwreck where they swam a long distance. <laughs> so, so true. But that's so different. <laughs> Shark infested waters, though. The uh, it, it does sound intimidating, but yeah, it could be could be a little exaggerated over time. Oh, I I, I would assume so. <laughs> um, and then another big movement where he started to get a little spotlight was a drunken U.S. Marine peed on the statue of Marty and Castro, you know, throws his hands up. Oh no. Organizes a protest around the, the statue. He puts people on guard of the statue so it's not violated in the future. The U.S. ambassador publicly apologizes and puts flowers on the statue. Um, but really, this is Fidel's moment where he's starting to get a little more publicity, mm. which yeah. he, um, yeah, in increasing his increasing his presence for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so after university, he marries Myrta, and interesting enough, they honeymoon in the United States for about a month. They went from Miami to New York. Um. 
it, yeah, not super relevant. I mean, he marries her. They're married for a little while. They end up getting a divorce. It's a very strenuous marriage because, well, one, for money, but the only, like, the real source of money was her parents and his parents would send them checks. And Fidel just never really had a job. He, <laughs> he was just a serial protester and speaker and would just go around talking to people, going to events, giving speeches. He'd give speeches at cemeteries and, um, you know, never really had a job. And I think the having to borrow money from the parents put a lot of stress on the marriage, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, but by all accounts, the, there was money to give from the parents. I don't think, yeah, their families were pretty well off. So, um, yeah. but I think his uh, not getting a job definitely could have caused some uh, turmoil there in, in their relationship. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, again, eventually they divorced. Fidel had a child with her and he would have other children with other women. So just a, just a blimp in the Fidel Castro life. He married Myrta. Yeah, I think uh, as, as time goes on, we're going to come to see that um, he was kind of a um, promiscuous. <laughs> so uh, not surprised that his first marriage <laughs> ended, ended early to set him off on his path of uh, promiscuity. Yeah, yeah. Very much a womanizer. And yeah, I mean also maybe abuse his powers but so at, at this time he is organizing a group of people and they're training with weapons on top of us you know some science building for the education but i don't know if they identified themselves as a fidelistas yet but you can start to see this movement that would eventually you know become what is a revolution and trying to top the the government yeah. and very much felt like a cult. I mean, they named themselves the Fidelistas. Fidel had strict rules of no drinking and a strict sexual morality. I mean, he was having an affair at the time. Um, it was just very cult-like. As tends, as tends to happen with uh, cult-like figures that they um, preach abstinence and then but somehow they're the one that doesn't have to abide by it. <laughs> it doesn't have to be optional and it's them. So yeah, yeah. it's good to know uh, Fidel was one and the same. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this group, and, and also the fact that he is getting these people together, we start to see his charisma and ability to mobilize people. And mm -hmm. they get together at a ranch. And at this point, Fidel's 26. And the amount of people has grown a little bit. And these in this group of people, probably about 15 carloads, they don't even know why they're going to the ranch yet. You know, there's been a lot of anti-US, anti-government talk, and they've been training with weapons, but they don't really know any details or what their specific goal is. But again, this is just such a cult, and they're just doing whatever, you know, their leader says. So they get to this ranch, and at this ranch, Fidel explains their goal to 
attack Moncada, some military barracks, and like start a revolution. Um, and, and so, be, and this seemed to be kind of um, uh, uh, almost a prevailing thought in Cuba at the time, because because Fidel wasn't the only person kind of doing this kind of behavior. There were a lot of small insurgencies, kind of like this, that were that were happening, and Fidel just happened to be one of the leaders. But yeah, no, it's it's a good point. Pete Batista, the current leader, people did not like him. He abused his powers. Fidel would mm -hmm. run around and take pictures of him living super lavishly, and and he was he, he was essentially a dictator. I don't think he was entitled, but in yeah, he was not popular. People wanted him to go. So yeah, Fidel, they go to the Moncada military bar barracks and they just get obliterated quickly. Fidel's, Fidelistas, revolution shut down very quickly. They call retreat almost immediately. And, and it's a massacre for a lot of the Fidelistas. And um, they... Based on what I was reading about it, they, they really did a horrible job of, of attacking. Like their plan was really, no, nobody knew about the plan ahead of time. <laughs> and um, the plan was poorly executed. And it was something like only half or maybe less than half of the, of the, the soldiers that were fighting in it even had guns. They didn't even, they didn't have enough guns for everybody. So they, so a bunch of the people that wanted to participate didn't even end up participating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just really bad outcome immediately. You know, ultimately it, it gives them publicity and such. So maybe it worked out for Fidel. But yeah, immediately they get destroyed and these people get put in prison. And Fidel um, is put on trial. And he's eventually sentenced to 15 years, but during the trial, he defends himself because um, he, he is a lawyer, although he, he never really practiced, but he got his law, you know, he is a lawyer. And he defends himself spectacularly, makes the news. They become sort of a martyr. Everyone's on their side because they hate this government. Here's this very young, charismatic leader. And his, his famous speech, he's like, condemn me. Doesn't matter. History will resolve me. And he goes to jail for 15 years. Okay, well, he, he gets sentenced for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And during his initial time in jail, he writes a manifesto. And just, like, if, if you were a revolutionary now, <laughs> don't ever write a manifesto. No one good <laughs> writes manifestos. <laughs> <laughs> they were popular in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah I, I guess that was the case. When I think of manifestos, Hitler had a manifesto, the Unabomber had a manifesto, <laughs> like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, they don't have manifestos. But anyway, um, and, and he, you know, even in prison, he has this manifesto, he's gaining popularity, and eventually a deal is made, and Fidel and the other people who are in this revolution attempt were granted amnesty and Fidel flees to Mexico. And in Mexico, he continues to plot revolution. And after some time, he goes back for another revolution attempt. There was 18 members, including 
Ernesto Che Guevara, I think I pronounced that right, and his brother Raul Castro, you know, other famous figures a lot of people probably have heard of. And they come on this like small yacht, 18 of them. They land in the jungle of Sierra. And they kind of set up base there. You know, this is like the guerrilla warfare a lot of people hear about where they're living in the jungle. You know, start as only 18 people, but they grow in strengths. They attack this military base here. They, they overtake this hospital here. And they're just over time gaining in, gaining in popularity and yada, yada, yada. Eventually, it took five years, but they gained so much popularity that Batista realized even people in his own government didn't like him, and he fled. Yep. They kind of, they started out on the, on the southern kind of edge and then slowly just worked their way north towards Havana. Uh, pretty impressive revolution starting from 18 people going against the whole government and mm. again he, he really knew how to market himself and the idea during this time the new york times they sent a, a journalist to go interview him there's a photo op um the publicity of the movement everyone loved them they were you know the david against goliath that in fact the actor who would play tarzan like hot hopped out of the like he, he had a photo op with a bunch of the rebels part of the revolution um so it's just a, a big movement and people were very much in favor of this revolution and something that was interesting was that at the time when castro was um was was doing this revolt they weren't necessarily fighting for socialism or communism they were just fighting against the current fascist regime. So it, it wasn't, it was, during this time, kind of the socialist um, tendencies that came out in the future, they, they didn't really matter because it was, it was people, it was pro-democracy people that were fighting. And it was pro, um, it was really just anybody who didn't like the, the current regime. And the current regime was just putting down the lower class is what he was doing. So it was kind of an easy movement to get behind because they were really just trying to dismantle the, the elitism that existed in Cuba at the time. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. That they were not at this point, you know, had any communism. There was no political motivation for, mm -hmm. at, for the aftermath. It was just all about the revolution. Yeah, um, he did, yeah, he did say things that were, that. I mean, you could construe them as socialists after the fact, but it wasn't, he wasn't necessarily using a socialist agenda. It wasn't until, it wasn't until much later that it, or not that much later, but it wasn't until later that the kind of socialist um, policies came forth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It reminds me of the quote, I know it from The Dark Knight and Batman, but you either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain. Like at this point, he is an absolute hero in the eyes of most people in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but then he just, he lives another 60 years <laughs> and uh, has some decisions people don't agree with. Yeah, exactly. At this time, the, um, the CIA, who seems to be completely interwoven with everything in this, the, um, the CIA is backing all the rebel groups to take down Batista and giving them... Um, 
guns and ammunition and things like that. So um, he was definitely the global community was supporting them as they as they went on this journey. Yeah, and and after the revolution, very soon after, he went to the United States to meet with you know diplomats. Um, but Fidel definitely always had a very anti-American view, um, e even from a, a younger age. It, it didn't come out right away, but um, it, it would come out soon after the revolution. He wasn't the president right away. He was actually the prime minister, and he appointed the some you know, judge he could walk over as president. Um, but essentially from now until, you know, 2008, whatever, he is in power. He is the... Yeah, from what, 1959 until 2008, so... Yeah. Yeah. And they do, there's, they start to put in place a lot of these socialist policies where they are taking land from, you know, wealthy landowners or eventually foreign owners and they're distributing it to uh, the poorer people and they're taking all these sugar mills and they're now government owned. So we start to see some of this uh, immediately after the revolution takes over. Yeah, definitely nationalizing of some industries. And this kind of went hand in hand with the, the increased tensions with the United States because um, there were a lot of U.S. interests in Cuba at the time, and um, Cuba and Castro would kind of use the ability to nationalize businesses and take take business businesses away from the, the private owners as a way to position himself with the United States in, in kind of foreign policy negotiations. So that increased um, quite a bit over the next couple years yeah and, and it just it kept escalating where you know cuba had debt to the americans and european companies for oil and at first you know he's not really paying it and then eventually you know the u.s is we're going to stop trading with certain stuff with cuba and eventually cuba you know seizes the land that these companies had previously paid for and seize all the oil equipment and all this stuff totals up to, you know, billions of dollars. And it's just, it's just a dead loss for these European American companies that bought this land. Um, obviously they don't get their money back and they don't get their equipment back or anything. And they don't get any of the debt paid. Um, and then the U S has like, you know, then they implement a almost complete embargo of trade with, Cuba so you know definitely a lot of tension there and this kind of um, coincides with the implementation of a lot of you mentioned the socialist policies that that they um, started um, implementing in Cuba which was um, they placed a, a huge emphasis on public schools which um, was really good public schools hospitals and um it, it improved the quality of life for the lower class and the working class exponentially over over this time period um 
with the kind of ideas that Castro was bringing forward. Yep, yep. Free education, free healthcare, and in the beginning, this, um, yeah, it is doing great things for the lower class. They do start to see a lot of middle class people uh, begin to leave Cuba, which for the next 60 years, they lose almost 10% of their population from fleeing Cuba. Um, but yeah, they known to have some of the best healthcare and um, highest literacy rates. And, and, and another thing I, I, I think worth mentioning um, from the critics was after Fidel's revolution took over, and we're backtracking a bit, but that year after, I, they um, killed 700 or so people estimated who were part of Batista's regime, you know, just whoever was sympathetic towards him. Um, and, yeah, they, and that, yeah. They killed, they killed all sorts of people because they killed people who were in Batista's regime. And then they also killed people that were um, revolutionaries, but weren't necessarily the same revolutionaries as them. Yeah. It was kind of this um, growth from, all right, we're gonna take out Batista. And then uh, Castro starts kind of implementing policies. And then other people that were also looking to take out Batista, they didn't really approve of the, where things were going. They were thinking it was gonna be kind of like a capitalist democracy or they were thinking that it was going to be some sort of republic. And um, things, Castro at the same time was consolidating power and implementing socialist policies. I actually, um, believe it or not, there's an American who was smack dab in the middle of uh, this revolution. And uh, hmm. and I, I have some notes on him. If you, if, if you would uh, humor me, we can go through. I did a... It's actually, so it wasn't just a Wikipedia deep dive. There's also a New Yorker article on this. <laughs> His name is uh, William Alexander Morgan. Uh, new, new name to me. I'm, I'm curious. So, yeah, he's not a, not a particularly well-known name, but uh, he was in Cleveland, Ohio. So he, start, he starts out in Cleveland, Ohio. He was a bright kid. He was very smart in school, seemed like a, like a decent enough kid. Um, he was a good student. He ran away when he was 15 years old, joined a carnival, and his dad got him and brought him back. So he was just always kind of, and he said that he didn't leave because he said his parents were always good to him, but he just wanted to see the world. Like he was just this kind of like bright minded, bright eyed individual. Idealist. Idealist, yes. So he drops out, out of high school in the ninth grade. So when he 15, he ran away. So um, comes back. He um, was just kind of uh, doing random stuff. Ends up joining the army when he's 18. In 19, he goes to Japan. Ends up meeting a hostess. And um, she gets pregnant. He then is in love with her and um, goes AWOL from the military. Wow. Captured. Then... Um, escapes capture, overpowers the, per the guard that's taking care of him, escapes capture, then gets captured again, and then gets sentenced to five years in prison. This is all when he's like 19. So he gets sentenced to five years in prison. 
serves two years in federal prison, and then moves to Florida, joins a carnival, gets married again, because his <laughs> previous relationship was strained. So at this point, he moves to Florida, he's in a carnival, marries a, um, a snake charmer. Is this his third marriage we're talking about now? This is his... Um, Second one or third? This is his third. Wow. I don't know if he married the person in Japan, but he was actually... Okay. He was married before he left. So he was married before he left for Japan, and then that marriage was annulled. And then the, he had the relationship in Japan, but then that fell apart when he went to federal prison in the U.S., and so then he marries a snake charmer in uh, Miami. And then he says, oh, this stuff going on in Cuba is just ridiculous and I can't stand for it. And I have this military experience, so I'm just going to go. So he just leaves his wife and children and goes yeah. to Cuba and then starts up. And he had two, <laughs> two, two good nicknames, the Yankee Commandante and <laughs> Americano. Ooh. And he basically just goes down and um, – in, like into the mountains and joins up similar to Fidel Castro and is like leading one of these groups in the revolutionary times. Him and um, Che Guevara like captured the city of Santa Clara like simultaneously, like they were kind of working together. And they, and him and Castro and Che Guevara are like friends. This uh, William Alexander Morgan guy. Um, he also gets married again. And um, at this time, he he kind of gains notoriety once Castro comes into power because there was a coup um, attempted on Castro by the Dominican Republic. They were trying to undermine him, and this and William Alexander Morgan like smashed the coup before it happened, and he gained notoriety for it, and had his U.S. citizenship revoked mm. because he was just so involved. This is as the tensions were rising, and he was just so involved in. Um, and then it gets crazier. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he, so this is a guy from Ohio who's done all this stuff. And then, so he starts a frog leg company that employed 600 people. Frog in, leg? Yeah, selling frog legs to um, restaurants in the United States. He also um, – decides that he doesn't like the socialist tendencies of Castro. So, so he starts doing counter-revolutionary behavior, undermining Castro. He was accused by somebody of blowing up the um, La Cubre ship, the La Cubre, which is the ship that blew up in Havana. It's a French ship that blew mm -hmm. up in the harbor and killed 100 people. He was accused of participating in the sabotage of that, but that, that's not confirmed. And then he ended up like maybe working with the CIA and um, kind of turning against Castro and um, was working with the mob and was working with all these people to try to then assass to assassinate Castro and kind of under the, under the, uh, the surface. And then eventually gets arrested and, and um, they, they execute him by, by, um, firing squad and <laughs> they told him when they executed him in March of 1961 they um, they told him to get on his knees and he said I kneel for no man and then they shot him in the kneecap and oh. he 
to the ground and then they shot him in the other kneecap and then eventually he dropped and then they shot him a bunch more times. And uh, he died at 32. What? <laughs> <laughs> that was, all that happened and he was the age of 32 when he died. Oh my so, God, dude, wow. I'll, I'll like yeah. And I was just reading about this guy and it just kept going. And if you skip the paragraph, you would miss like a marriage. And, <laughs> <laughs> or like he went to some other place. And so we had this New Yorker, New Yorker article done on him in 2012. And uh, Adam Driver is going to play him in a movie that's supposed to come out in 2021. Wow, electric. So you may hear his name in the future. Wow, heard it here first. That is absolutely insane. And that <laughs> the inside of his head must just be absolute chaos, 100 speed. I highly, highly recommend um, reading the New Yorker article. Anybody listening, if you go and look up um, William Alexander Morgan and the New Yorker, it's a it's a wild article, and they um, and they they dig they dig in quite a bit. So yeah. that's that's one example of the American influence into the into the world. <laughs> yeah, they, man, impulsive. Yeah, I, I gotta I gotta read that article. But oh, another thing that came up, which was very common, is CIA attempts to murder Castro. Over his reign, there was you know, hundreds of attempts and a lot of time, and sometimes they involve the mafia. Um, so a lot of interesting, maybe shady stuff going on. Yeah. I, I saw one source that said it was over 500 attempts, but yep. I saw that as well. I'd buy it. I feel like that's so many attempts. How do you attempt? How does the CIA attempt to kill somebody over 500 times and not succeed? Yeah. The, the article I saw, it said it came out if you averaged it out to once a month. And they were trying crazy stuff, exploding cigars, you know, a diving suit that had poison in it, just crazy stuff. And, um, yeah, he, he escaped them all. Okay, so, yeah, he, he wasn't, as we were saying before, communist right away. But then he has a lot of socialist tendencies. He's very anti-American and starts to get buddy-buddy with the Soviet Union. And this leads to, um, well, it doesn't lead to, but he gets, it leads to the Cuban Missile Crisis. But before that, we have the Bay of Pigs. Mm. Um, and speaking of assassination attempts, this is a revolution attempt where it started with Eisenhower and then JFK took over and they were taking all these Cuban exiles. Again, a lot of people were fleeing Cuba and these exiles wanted to go back and take back their country and the United States trained them, gave them weapons, machinery, whatever they would need. Um, but Cuban intel, they knew it was coming it, it was so obvious and planned for so long that the Cuban government knew it would happen. And right before the Bay of Pigs invasion would happen, U.S. airplanes, not manned by U.S., no one in the U.S. military was 
directly involved in the invasion, but U.S. airplanes bombed airplanes or bombed airplanes, Cuban airplanes on the ground. <clears throat> and they thought they bombed them all, but actually Cuba hid some planes away. And so then when the invasion happened um, and they were coming on these huge ships, Cuba still had some planes and they bombed and destroyed these ships, which I guess was like the pivotal moment of without these ships, the invasion couldn't happen. So the invasion was a huge embarrassment in, in some ways for the United States. Fidel Castro afterwards uh, would look at the prisoners and he was very disappointed he didn't see any Americans. He was hoping it would be an even bigger um, victory over the Americans, but nonetheless, it, it's American-backed revolution. And this, like, beyond furthers the tensions with the U.S. and pushes Cuba even closer in allies with Russia, mm -hmm. which leads to the infamous Cuban Missile Crisis. Yep. <clears throat> and what happens here is the United States is getting undeniable intel that Russia is delivering and assembling nuclear weapons in Cuba. You know, they have their drones, they have intel from other people. It's, it's a very well-known and eventually <clears throat> John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, addresses the nation in the world on air and explains that they, this is not okay, that they are putting nuclear weapons very close to the U.S. where the U.S. wouldn't have time to detect it and deflect the missiles. Yeah, like 100 miles away from the U.S. border. Yeah, well in range of all these big American cities, and Kennedy, they start a blockade. So they, out in the high seas, they have a bunch of U.S. ships preventing any delivery into Cuba. And so a very tense period because mm -hmm. Russia ships are coming um, right in line with U.S. ships, and it's, you know, if anyone fires first, there's um, a very close story involving a submarine. Do you know this story, Slavin? Are you about to go into this? I don't want to spoil it. No. Okay. So, and I, I don't know all the specifics, but there was a Russian submarine that was very close to a U.S. ship and either one of them could have fired and the Americans didn't know it, but the Russian submarine, they they had nuclear weapons aboard and they didn't have communication because they were so deep underwater. They couldn't communicate with the Soviet Union. And excuse me when I keep saying Russia, obviously it's the Soviet Union, but so it was, it was like they were inches away from pressing the button. And just another story to give you an idea of how tense it was and how on the verge of world or of a nuclear disaster. So, the U.S. had hundreds of planes which could, which could drop nuclear bombs, and one-eighth of these planes, so, you know, who knows, 60, 50, 40 of these planes were always in flight, just waiting for the signal to drop these nuclear weapons. So, so it's not even like, oh, they're loaded, we launched the airplanes, literally just driving around, driving around, these, or flying around these main targets, just waiting for permission to drop these nuclear weapons. So that's how close... It is the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'll, I'll quickly explain what ends up happening is 
Oh, and also the world is freaking out. Like the Pope is writing letters to Kennedy and. Oh yeah. I mean, you, if you think about the time when there were, it was the cold war, the height of the cold war. And then all of a sudden the United States finds out that actually Russia has nuclear weapons literally right on our doorstep. And then, (laughs) and then they have to figure out how to resolve that. It's like, it's literally the end of the world could happen. Absolutely. And eventually it gets resolved between Kennedy and Khrushchev, uh, leader of the Soviet Union, where the U.S. will remove their missiles from Turkey and the Soviet Union will remove theirs from Cuba. You know, the world comes out a winner. But Castro's pretty, like, bummed out. He wasn't involved because he thought he wanted to be on the world stage with these two, but the negotiations happened without him. And also there were letters after the fact from Castro to Khrushchev that came out and Castro was pretty gung ho about using the uh, nuclear weapons. Yeah. And it was Castro who asked Russia to, who kind of brought it up to Russia to say, Oh, you should bring some nuclear weapons to Cuba because the United States has already tried to invade Cuba and we're such good allies. And then, and it will also be this kind of tactical bonus for you. And honestly, it kind of backfired. Yeah. It resulted in um, a lot of fear. Yeah. Both sides. I have a list of other times where the world has almost ended from nuclear uh, destruction. This is all, most of them are, I think it's all pretty much during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. There have been too many recently. Um, but I'll go through them right now. <laughs> and it's also kind of crazy because it feels like a lot of these, it's like computer glitches and um, oh. just radar things and not knowing what's going on. Yeah. So in 1960, radar equipment in Norway uh, mistook the moon rising as a Soviet missile launch. And um, so alarms started getting sounded regarding that. And then um, it eventually was dismissed as a false alarm, mainly because um, Khrushchev was in New York City at the time. So (laughs) it didn't seem reasonable that that Russia would be nuking the United States. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad some, yeah, I'm glad, I can see there be a meeting about, like, should we retaliate and set nuclear weapons, and then just someone in the back of the meeting room is just like, well, you know, he's here in New York, so he's, they're probably not firing weapons. I'm, I'm glad, glad nothing happened. In 1961, a plane carrying two nuclear missiles broke up in the air in North Carolina and crashed. So the plane crashed carrying two nuclear weapons. <laughs> and one of them almost went off when the plane landed. Oh. I was wondering that, like, can they just go off if you like, sh- if you shot down a plane? But... Um, the, I, we would need a uh, molecular physicist here to be able to really determine that. But I, I imagine that the, the ignition sequence for a nuclear weapon is like there's some sort of uh it's more of a chemical type thing than a I, I would think so explosive so 
I think as long as those, they, they probably have protocols just in case yeah. so that they have to land it like the right way or something like that. Yeah. Um, in 1965, there was a large power outage in, in, the, in the Northeast of the US and people thought that it was, and like detectors started going off for nuclear weapons and people were kind of thinking that this was, that this was the moment. Um, that was in 1965. Damn. Um, in 1979, there was a computer error, which led the U.S. to prepare for an all-out attack. <laughs> uh. there, were, um, there were a couple of times where it was computer errors. In 1980 and 83, there were um, training exercises. Basically, like people would like shoot up a missile during a training exercise. This is almost like what happens in the um, Pacific Coast in northwest or northeast asia nowadays with like north korea and stuff yeah but there's a lot of that going on where um us or the soviet union would be doing like a missile test and then everybody would just kind of like get to get to their battle stations <laughs> in 1983 there was a us exercise to simulate um what it would be like for if the russians did attack and or the Soviets, if they did attack, and it was basically like interpreted as real for a long time. They then so somebody set off the simulation, and then it became a real situation because they they were simulating the response, but then they didn't know it went to the, it went to like heads of state before they realized that it was actually a drill. <laughs> <laughs> so that was in 1983. And then in, and then the most recent one was in uh, 90, 95. And there was a Norwegian um, research rocket that was sent up to study the Northern Lights. And um, it led to Russia like getting to the point that the Russian president like could have launched nuclear attacks. Like he had the, the football, so to speak. Yeah. And, didn't because they eventually identified it as a research satellite, but um, yeah. So it's come and I mean this, and then the, the submarine during basically the whole Cuban Missile Crisis is probably the, the closest that we've ever come. Yeah, but there's more examples of. Fortunately, yeah. nothing in the last um, twenty years or so that's like really gotten too close. Yeah, yeah, that we know of, um, and. <laughs> <laughs> And Fidel, in his later years, after he actually stepped down as like a political leader, so like from years 2008 to 2016, he was a huge advocate for denuclearization and against the use of nuclear weapons. Um, so it's, yeah, thankfully we haven't had a nuclear war. I, I don't think, I don't think the world would be anything remotely the same if uh, a nuclear war happened at in the famous Einstein quote, I don't know what weapons world war three will be fought with, but world war four will be fought with sticks and stones. Um, so well. <laughs> just, you know, very mm. glad nothing's happened yet. Um, North Korea behave yourself. So another big movement of Fidel and this was new to me I didn't know this was such a part of his 
reign was his involvement in foreign guerrilla wars. Fidel was just a perennial, always working on a revolution. Whether it's Chile, Angola, Nicaragua, Granada, Cuba would train people. They would send uh, military leaders into these different nations and get these guerrilla revolution warfare and try to, and then afterwards implement these socialist communist style governments. Yeah. It's very, um, they were doing like nation building kind of like the U S where they would just go in, in the case of Angola in the Angolan civil war, they sent 36,000 troops to participate in the Angolan civil war. Yeah. He, he was very internationally involved and had, you know, he was, almost idealist in the these socialist governments and anti-US capitalism. And it really extended way beyond Cuba. And it, he, he was very good at it. With the revolution they had, it was very successful. And a lot of the other revolutions were successful. The aftermath of the governments, um, a lot of the governments ended up not working out. And But, but in terms of just the revolution and seizing the power, um, he was very successful in Cuba and beyond. Yes, definitely. And in in one of these, and I don't know too much of the facts, but Shay was leading a revolutionary group, and he ended up dying, but became a huge martyr, a huge symbol. I always remember seeing T-shirts with his face on them, and they say Shay, and mm-hmm. uh, Castro, yeah. yeah. He was, um, he was leading a, um, a guerrilla war in Bolivia mm-hmm. and, and eventually killed there. That was what caused that, which um, I'm just going to come out and say it. <laughs> Based on what I read from Che Guevara, not a good guy. <laughs> yeah, I always, I didn't know much about him. I knew his name and I always thought he was beloved, you know? I think he's, yeah, that famous photo, he's kind of viewed as kind of like a socialist um, symbol. He had this thing called the new man, which was, um, which was kind of this idealistic point of view on what he thought, how he thought people should behave. So somebody who was selfless, cooperative, obedient, anti-imperial, hardworking, and um, so kind of similar to the values that Castro has instilled. But he also did a lot of things that were like not necessarily great. This doesn't mean he's necessarily a bad guy, but when he was head of commerce and president of the National Bank, he like really didn't really believe in money. So he would just sign the money as a way to, he would sign the bills just Shay because he um, didn't really like care for them as much. Like he just, that was how he did it. The, the thing that makes him maybe not a great guy was the fact that um, there are some like interesting race related things that he was related to where um, I won't go into those specific quotes, but there are quotes out there of on one side, there's the, the Cuban cause was very much um, pro African-American in the United States, but um, Guevara had a, a few kind of interesting quotes that are not 
that could be interpreted as racist. Mm -hmm. So he had kind of two sides to that coin. And then also um, after the revolution, he was the governor of a prison in, um, I think it was in Santa Clara, but I could be mistaken. And uh, he killed a lot of people. And also quotes, <laughs> he killed a lot, he executed a lot of prisoners. So when those, those executions were happening, he was doing a lot of the executing. And there are quotes that you can read where he like talks about how he like likes the smell of blood. Yeah. So I, I have, yeah, I've seen some of that because before I believe he, I believe he's from Argentina actually. And he was a, he was a doctor before all this. So I, I hear his executions were very cold blooded, you know, like science, like boom, you know, very almost eerie for how a lot of people, um, yeah, a lot of people when they would see these executions. Were yeah. Like, Whoa. So, yeah, regardless of uh, of his political views, <laughs> I think he murdered too many people <laughs> in cold blood <laughs> to be considered like a hero. Well, he was a hero in some ways, but yeah. he's definitely a conflicted hero. If um, if that is in, if that is how people want to view him. Yeah. 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 Fidel definitely used that to his advantage and, and created a martyr for the movement. Also, so at this point, and who knows a specific time, let's say it's, you know, the 1980s. It, it's interesting to me that Fidel and the people who support his cause, they still refer to the government as the revolution. At this point, Fidel's been the only, you know, the, the leader for 20 some years and it's mm -hmm. still the revolution. And it would be, you know, his whole reign, he referred to their government as the revolution, even though well, they were like the longest standing political power. Well, that's kind of in line with their behavior, kind of going into foreign wars. And, and they, because if, it, if, if it's a revolution in Cuba, and then it's a revolution in Angola, it's a revolution in Mozambique, wherever they go. So... Yeah, it kind of, it, it, it makes sense in that, in that kind of aspect. Yeah, yeah. I just, I feel like it's tough to keep that emotion fervor, but uh, Fidel did it. And so one of the big downfalls um, for Cuba, besides just constant economic crisis, but this really put strain on their economy was the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm -hmm. And that is where Cuba got a lot of their money got their oil, their trading, their support was from the Soviet Union. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, it really puts Cuba in a tough spot. Yeah, their, their economy declined by 40% in two years. Yeah. Because the, the new um, head of Russia just was not a fan of Castro. So he basically just stopped doing trade. And Cuba, in, uh, on the economic point, back in the so they've had they've had all these moments where they've had really tough economic times um basically because cuba's primary primary exports were um sugar and well tobacco but not probably not as much as the sugar sugar was the big one and um back in the 80s at one point i thought this was an interesting um, statistic that basically the Soviet Union was subsidizing um, Cuba in a way that 
the Soviet Union would give discounts on oil that they would send to Cuba. And then Cuba would then artificially inflate the prices of sugar and then send it back the other way. So they were getting discounts on everything that they needed and they were selling everything that they had to sell. And Russia was, or the Soviet Union was just letting them sell it for more. And that activity made up 30 to 38% of their GDP. Yeah. It was fake, basically. Yeah, exactly. They, like you said, Shay, like the head of the finance, you know, didn't even believe in, in money. Um, and so, yeah, they, as a country, really struggled economically. And, and a big part of this is Fidel and their government, it was all nationalized, a lot of the industry, and they had so much power. And you would hear stories where Fidel would be like, okay, we're going to put all the crops in the mountains. And then, you know, some of the farmers would be like, eh, I don't think that's the greatest idea. Boom, exile. Like, you don't disagree with Fidel. And so he has all these ideas. And just and at the end of the day, um, that wasn't his expertise. His expertise was revolutions. And so they really struggled economically. And yeah. yeah. That the crazy thing is that even though they were struggling so much, he still helped out the majority of people more than anybody had before. And yeah. uh, because even when there was sometime, I think it was 1970 approximately, he basically, there, there was an economic downturn. The sugar exports were low and um, they did sugar rations and they like were working around the clock to meet the quota for the exports. And um, Castro just like announced that they were gonna do it. And then enlisted the military to help and everybody was worked really hard to get it done and it didn't end up happening. And he offered to resign yeah. later and people went out in the street and they, and he, and petitioned for him to, to stay. Yeah. So he, he was still beloved for uh, a long time. Absolutely. And so that was one of his really well done skills was public speaking to the masses. And that was his form of democracy is he would go, and I do this with quotations around democracy, he would set up, you know, this big speaking event where, you know, mainly people who like him are going to go watch him speak. And then he speaks super passionately and he'll say stuff like, do you guys want me to resign? And of course the crowd's like, no, we love you. And he's like, okay, well that's democracy. So, you know, um, so but, but yeah, no, I, I, like the country as a whole really suffered, but um, the wealth was better distributed. Um, we're saying F Fidel never suffered because this is another thing. He lives super lavishly. I mean, he owns the economy. So he basically has, you know, a credit card, you know, he's like the CEO. He has like a company credit card for Cuba and, you know, he has like private islands mansions everywhere private planes he's living of course super lavishly because he's you know the leader of all of this but yeah as a whole um the wealth was you know pretty well distributed and there wasn't much of the wealth but because it was distributed um like the lowest of the low were you know brought up a little bit which um but positive not sustainably as it turns out they were, they were being propped up <laughs> exactly exactly sustainable from an economic perspective just a random side note, um, 
I read that he stayed up till three or four a.m. every night, and um, when he had meetings with with leaders of other um, countries, he would try to have them like at those times so that they would be really tired and he wouldn't be. Oh yeah, no, he, I I heard that as well. He was known for just. Well, one, he'd give speeches for like six hours and it'd be at the dead of night. And he was just, he had so much energy and it just, it sounds like someone who's just living off of pure adrenaline. Yeah, he gave, he had the record for the longest speech at the UN. It was like four and a half hours. Oh yeah, that's, and that's nothing for him. Four and a half hours, that is nothing. Um, yeah. And so after the Soviet down collapse, that's when there's really starts to be even more of a movement um, of people trying to flee Cuba. And eventually, in 1994, you get this huge Cuban raft exodus where like 35,000 people are, you know, leaving on flimsy rafts. And they actually had something like this earlier. And I forget which exodus, but it was like almost approved by Fidel. And he was like, oh, well, whatever, you know, get rid of our worms, our prostitutes, our bums. And they even put like prisoners and people in mental patients and just kind of ship them to us. And, you know, it's very dehumanizing. Um, yeah, that was right when, um, right when he came into power, uh, the U S basically offered to take in refugees mm-hmm. and just put prisoners. Yeah. Like you said, prisoners and um, mental health patients and people that they deemed unfit. Yeah. Uh, those are the only people that they let leave. Yeah, and, and people were very desperate, some of them very hungry, and that's why they would get on these rafts and actually U.S. and different charity organizations would, you know, fly planes and try to drop, drop supplies and to these uh, rafts. But, um, you know. This one um, CIA thing where it was called Operation Bounty. Did you hear about that? No. Enlighten me. I just thought this was funny. What they were going to do was they were going to drop notes of paper that basically said that there were bounties on all these people in Cuba. And so if you killed like a Cuban official, they would give you like a certain amount of money. And if you killed, uh, like you name it, they would give you like certain level amounts of money basically to just pay people to do insurrection. And the guess what the price was for Castro? Oof like 100,000 bucks, which was like 3 million in their money. What was it? Two cents. Because <laughs> they, they wanted to insult him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and oh, um, my that didn't end up happening. Was that brainstormed or did they actually drop these? Um, Just brainstormed. They didn't, they didn't actually do it. Very, very sadistic. So, yeah. And then... I mean, his power in the later years declining really doesn't have the support of the people, especially the younger people. And then 2006, he gets very sick. And I actually remember this uh, when we were in school at this time. But in 2006, he got very sick. And a lot of people, you know, thought he was dead and they were just hiding it. But um, his brother, Raul Castro, takes over. And in 2008, Fidel just steps down and, you know, lives another eight years kind of in a retirement fashion where he's still a little bit involved, writes a little bit, appears publicly a little bit, but it's very old and frail. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Raul Castro is still 
leader in Cuba. Really? How old do you think he is? I'm going to look that up. Uh, I want to say he's like 80. Oh yeah, 89. He must have. He must. He was a little bit younger than Fidel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was part of the revolutionary effort. Oh yeah, he was part of that 18 people who landed on Sierra, him, Shea, and Fidel with the big names. So, another thing that I just want to bring up while we're talking about like good policies, bad policies of what dictator revolutionary leader here's like a bad thing that they did was they had this thing called the military units to aid production which was basically like prison labor camps yeah that had 30,000 to 50,000 people and about eight or nine percent was um um basically uh gay men homosexual men and other people that they they did kind of like the thought policing type stuff which you don't like to see yeah in in societies and um they did like the um they would they would round round up people perceived homosexuals um intellectuals that didn't agree with what they were doing they would also put them in the labor camps so the association so castro was atheist mm-hmm and um, kind of denounced religion as thing, as this was all going on. So priests and ministers um, also got put into labor camps at times if they were kind of not getting in line with, with what they were doing. Yeah. So there's definitely serious thought policing going on in Cuba. And, um, yeah. He came to power. Yeah. Authoritarian government, and there was a lot of criticism about their civil rights where they had these prisoners, these labor camps were forced to work in brutal conditions and their means of who was guilty and who was not was very arbitrary and really a lot, if Fidel wanted to at his whim. Like if someone, if he had, if he had someone he didn't like when, in his younger youth, they would later be put into prison for just some BS reason. Um, yeah, they would, they would, uh, they would not give fair trials and they would just sentence people to really unfortunate sentences for crimes. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy stuff. All right. Well, I think, I think that covers it. Anything, any last words? Um, I'm thinking if I have any, um, Oh, can we talk quickly about the, um, about like the mafia and the mob and about how, because, the mob basically was just trying so the mob they they had businesses seized in cuba so the mob was like kind of low-key trying to kill castro to get revenge on him the whole time and um i just thought that was super interesting and then then castro was and the mob were also intertwined with these um conspiracy theories about the jfk assassination and it's just so that organized crime in the United States was kind of like right in the middle of these uh, international relations between Cuba and the U.S. Yeah, yeah. So the mob, they had a lot of casinos and money in Cuba and Castro sees those and so they just lose out on their money in casinos, don't get paid back for it. So they get really mad at him 
and they were definitely involved in CIA attempts. And yeah, you also hear those theories where people wonder if the CIA is using the mafia to get Castro and in doing so Castro, like, you know, offers them something that they want to kill JFK. It, it's some super interesting stuff. I wish, you know, some serious investigative journalism went into this. We could, you know, see some cool documentaries yeah. about just the shady, crazy stuff that was going on. Yeah, there's definitely, there's, there's more information out there. I think it's, um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot that happened that uh, I think could make for some pretty interesting uh, public, yeah. public viewing. That's a good point. He, he, Castro probably had a lot of secrets um, that died with him. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, on that note, so long, everyone. Thank you for listening, and uh, we will see you next time.